Can Be New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Well, it's great to be with you uh, on this post-Thanksgiving weekend. And we are continuing the series, Christ in You, the rest of the story. In other words, God is still writing the story that we read here in the Bible. It's the same story, it's just that now He's using us. And um, last weekend, you, if you were here, you may recall that we talked about our missions and our missionaries that we've sent out from this church, just some of them. We weren't able to cover everyone and every mission that goes out from this church, but we did introduce many of them to you. Just to let you know that we are uh, sharing the story, not only here in this church, but in our community, in our nation, in our world. This weekend, I wanted to talk to you about the, uh, really deal with this question of um, why missions and missionaries are needed at all. Why do we need them to preach this gospel to the world? And so, to focus our attention on what I'm about to share, I've given the title of this message, uh, the title is, I've called it, The Great Conspiracy. The Great Conspiracy, those of you who are into conspiracy theories, this will be just for you. And I, I also feel impressed, I didn't say this in any of the other services, but I do feel impressed that well, I'm going to be talking about a couple of topics that will be talking a little bit more to those who are married and to families. I just feel impressed by the Lord that all who are young people uh, who are yet to be married someday, perhaps, you hope, you want to pay close attention to this message as well. So before we do that, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the time of worship and fellowship that we've enjoyed and just knowing that you're in us, you're with us, and that we can join together like this as a church family and be encouraged in the faith. And Lord, as we open your word, I pray your Holy Spirit would speak a very personal and practical word to each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. The place I'd like to start this morning is in Genesis chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. It's where this great conspiracy I want to talk with you about began. It's a familiar passage. Uh, most people in the world kind of know something about this passage, but I want to read it because there's a lot of hidden treasure here. It begins this way. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say... You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Did God really say? Did God really say? That's an interesting question. In fact, it's this innocent-sounding question that started all of the trouble that exists in our world today. 
It's the question that causes people to doubt the Bible and every word God has ever spoken. Did God really say? Did he really say that he created the heavens and the earth in six days? And then ceased from his labor on the seventh? Did he really say that? I thought it took 13.7 billion years to make it all. Did God really make man from the dust of the ground and then, recognizing that it wasn't good for man to be alone, that he, he took one of his ribs and fashioned a woman from that? Did he really say that? And did God really make mankind, male and female, and did he really say that marriage was the union of the man and the woman? Did God really say that he would destroy the earth with a flood of waters? And that he would only save Noah, his family, a total of eight people and animals that were selected to be on an ark? Did God really part the Red Sea and make the waters stand up in a heap and the waters congealed and then the wind blew, dried out the seabed so that Israelites could cross over dry shod and then after they were safely on the other side caused the waters to return drowning all the Egyptians in their army. Did God really say that? Did God really say that Jesus was the only way to the Father and that there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved? Did God really say that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ would be suddenly, miraculously transformed and receive a new, incorruptible, immortal body and be removed from the earth, ascend up into the clouds to meet Jesus in the air? Did he really say that? Did God really say that he will judge mankind one day and that all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life will be sent to the lake of fire where they will be tormented forever? Did God really say these things? Do you really believe what he said? Eve questioned what God said. And instead of believing what God said, she chose to believe what Satan said. She accepted his lie that God was somehow selfish, that he was lying, wasn't telling her the truth, and wanted to keep something good from her. It's so interesting when you look at where this great conspiracy began, if you really look at it closely, because what we discover is that in Genesis chapter 2, God actually said this. He said to Adam and Eve, of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, of every tree you may freely eat except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in that day, if you ever eat of that, you will surely die. Those were God's exact words. Do you notice how Satan twisted what God said. Instead of emphasizing the liberty that God intended, he emphasized the limitation. Has God really said that you shall not eat of every tree? Leaving her to think, wow, boy, that, that is pretty restrictive. We, can only, we, can, we can't eat from every tree. She also added to what God said. She added something that God didn't say. And whenever this happens, whenever we doubt what God says, we don't believe it, 
We have just bought into the lie and brought unspeakable, tragic events and heartache and pain and suffering into our lives. And so that began the devil's great conspiracy against God and mankind. It began on that day, and today we're all experiencing the consequences of that one decision to not believe what God really said. You know, it's amazing to me, and scientists are really on the threshold of, of, try, of actually discovering what I'm about to tell you, and that is that they're now discovering that our universe is functioning according to incredibly precise mathematical laws. That there are certain foundational principles that govern the way life works. And this, of course, is revealed to us in God's Word. God created our universe and all life to function according to these foundational principles, these these things that really govern the way life is supposed to work. And if they are followed, what it would mean is that our life on this earth and every relationship would be eternally fulfilling. If man had never doubted what God said, there would be no wars, no pain, no sorrow, no tears, no sin, no death. The glory of God and his spirit would fill the earth and we would be able to relate with him face to face as Adam did in the beginning. Think about what God's intention and and what his design originally was. God created a perfect world and two perfect people in whom was no sin whatsoever. And the Bible says that God would actually walk in the garden with them in the cool of the day and they would have a conversation. Can you imagine that? Two people in a perfect relationship with one another and then in a perfect relationship with their creator and seeing him face to face. I wonder what they would talk about every day. I mean, God goes, visits Adam and says, Adam, why don't you go name all the animals? I think that's a great project. Let's do that together. And whatever you name them, that's what their name will be. You see, God's plan from the very beginning was to have two perfect people have children in whom was no sin and grow up in this perfect world and these children would then beget children and so forth and so on and pretty soon the whole world would be filled with sinless people in perfect relationship with one another and with God. Heaven on earth. But that all changed the day those two people decided They weren't going to believe what God really said. Unfortunately, we're an awful awful lot like them. We doubt what God really said. We struggle to accept his word as truth. Satan is still contradicting and distorting every word God has ever spoken. Did God really create the heavens of the earth? I thought it all came about as an instability in a cosmic singularity that suddenly exploded for some unknown reason, and all of a sudden we have the universe and its multiple galaxies, billions of them. You mean it didn't happen that No, I'm sorry. God just did it. He spoke them into existence. The Apostle Paul actually describes this conspiracy in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. 
And he actually describes it as a kind of mystery, an unseen spiritual battle. He says the secret power of lawlessness, the King James Bible says the mystery of iniquity is already at work. You see, there was a force that's being exerted, a pressure that's being exerted on absolutely everyone on earth today. It's called this mystery of iniquity, basically challenging, questioning, doubting everything God says. And this is something that is at work, and it's in work overtime, especially in these last days. The Apostle Paul understood that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Do you know where the battlefield is? The battlefield is between your ears. The weapons formed against you are called fiery darts, Ephesians chapter 6, flaming missiles in the Greek. They're thoughts that are not subject to the mind and will and word of God. And once they gain a foothold, they begin to exert their influence. So the devil understands that if God's word is truth, what he needs to do is somehow twist and distort that and convert it into a lie. And he does so very subtly. He wants to destroy every relationship. He wants to separate us from God. And primarily, he wants to undermine the most foundational relationships that are essential to life on earth. The relationship that we find in marriage and family. The truth is, if Adam had never sinned, we'd never question what it means to be male or female. It wouldn't even occur to us that marriage should be anything other than the union of one man and one woman for life. And we would trust God's definition of how husband, wife, parents, and children are designed to relate with one another. And if we truly believe what God really said, there'd be no need for missions because we'd beget all of these wonderful children who would fill the earth with the glory of God and the knowledge of God. I need to tell you that God has not abandoned that plan. He will absolutely realize that plan. The last two chapters of your Bible describe it in graphic detail. There is coming a new heaven, a new earth, and the only people living in it will be righteous and holy, and they will see him face to face. Did God really say that? Yep. Read the last two chapters. He's never abandoned that mission, that purpose, that goal for life. But doubting what God really said launched this conspiracy that we are still wrestling against today. Wouldn't it be wonderful to live in a world where children would love, respect, and obey their parents? Husbands and wives would love each other. It'd be really great, wouldn't it? But most people in the world not only doubt what God really said, they reject his word altogether, which is why I believe our world is in such a mess. So I've talked about the great conspiracy. Let me share with you the great truth of the Bible. The great truth of the Bible is that all of life and every biblical principle is summed up in the one word relationship. I think I can prove to you from one end of the Bible to the other that is the central theme of, and that's the message. The relationship was damaged and God's been at work to atone, redeem, restore, resurrect that relationship that was intended from the foundation before the foundation of the world.
The Bible teaches that we're all created to have a personal relationship with God, that a man and woman were created to have this loving, intimate relationship in marriage, that children were intended to find their worth, value, and unique destiny in life through the guidance of their parents to discover their own relationship with God. That was the plan. So it's no wonder that Satan and the mystery of iniquity have been at work to destroy these foundational relationships. And it's really not, you don't have to look very far to see that he's pretty successful. I think one of the greatest tragedies of human history is there has never been a century in the history of mankind where people have not been at war with one another. And if it isn't a well-organized war, we can certainly find it in our city streets and even in our homes. It seems amazing that once this conspiracy took root in the heart of man, we seem to be predisposed to hate people who are different from us or have something we want. Nations go to war and conquer other nations to take what they have, and they label these conquering, the people they're going to conquer, as less than human, who need to be eradicated by any means necessary. Why is this? Where does this all come from? James 4, 1 to 3 explains it. He says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members you lust, you do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight in war? Yet you do not have because you do not ask and you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. This passage tells us that all wars, all conflicts in human relationships can ultimately be traced to one cause and that is selfishness. And the root of selfishness is pride. The belief that I am somehow a God who gets to choose what is right and wrong, good and evil, and that my needs are more important than anyone else's. The disturbing thing about this passage is that it was written to Christians. And it explains why we often have troubled marriages and family relationships. The fact is the reason for the troubles in our most important relationships is because at some level we don't believe and accept what God has really said is the truth. So let's talk about the truth. What's the truth about marriage? What did God really say about marriage? Let's just take that one for an example. Let's see if we can get our minds wrapped around what he says a marriage should look like and how it's supposed to work according to plan. By the way, remember, God invented marriage. That was his idea. He also invented this thing called family. So let's just see what he had to say. Ephesians 5, to 33 says this. Wives, oh, we get to start with you, ladies, sorry. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Okay, now that one might take some meditation. The way I submit to Jesus? Okay. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Oh. Husbands, okay, your turn. 
Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. By the way, that's a quote from Genesis 2. Right back to the foundational blueprint for the relationship. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you, in particular, so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay. Brace yourselves now. Did God really say that a wife should submit, be in subjection to, and honor her husband? Yes, he did. Well, conventional wisdom would say, uh, that's not part of what I sign up for when I get married. Now, let me focus on one word in that definition, that description of the wife's role relationship with her husband. It's the word submission. I want you to stop and think right where you are. What's the first thought that comes to your mind when you hear the word submission? No? Okay. Lord Jesus, bless us everyone. <laughs> I appreciate that honesty. It's a good place to be transparent, isn't it? Yes. <clears throat> the first thing that often comes to mind is submission sort of gives the idea of inferiority. If you're in submission or in subjection to someone, that means you're somehow lesser than. That's the lie. That's the mystery of iniquity. That's the twisting of our minds to conclude something that God never intended. Submission doesn't mean inferiority. It simply means you have a different role and responsibility and our biological design should be enough to make the point. A woman gives birth to children. A man doesn't. God has given the husband the responsibility to lead and provide and the weight of that leadership responsibility is supposed to rest fully on his shoulders. Listen, to prove this, Jesus submitted to his Father in heaven. He said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. I don't say anything I don't hear my Father in heaven saying. I don't do anything that I don't see my Father in heaven doing. Jesus was in submission to his Father in heaven, and yet he was in no way inferior to him. He was God. He simply came to this earth to fulfill a particular role and responsibility, which was to die for the sins of mankind. Submission, wives, doesn't mean you're inferior to your husband. By the way, Jesus died for both the husband and the wife. Proves your worth right there. 
You're to be co-heirs, co-reign. You reign in life together. You pray together. God meant it to be a partnership. And listen, if it's any encouragement to you wives, I never said this in the other service, but I do feel to say it now. It was not good for man to be alone. That's why he created the woman. It's not good for us. We needed you. We would have been a mess without you. Wow. Never thought talking about marriage would be so much fun. (laughs) God created a helper because, friends, we need help. As a husband, we need help. We need, what does the body do? It supports, it upholds the head. God said, look at the picture, guys. The The body upholds, supports the head. The head should take input from the body so it can make wise decisions. If the head never consults the body, well, you're kind of decapitated. (laughs) Not going to make very good decisions there. So get a clue. Get joined to your wife. Become one. All right, enough of that. Well, wives will come to me and say, well, what if my husband isn't loving me the way Jesus loves me? He's supposed to love me, and he's not very honorable. It's really hard to respect him, by the way. Listen, wives, the success or failure of your husband doesn't nullify God's commandment to you to submit, respect, and honor him. It doesn't mean you're off the hook. It just means you've got a bigger challenge. And Peter addresses this challenge in 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 6. He says, wives... Likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that if even some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear or respect. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart. With the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. I understand that for some wives... It is a terror sometimes to be married to your husband. They don't often make wise decisions. They come to you and say, honey, I really think we need a Harley. (laughs) And she's thinking, hmm, I think we need curtains. (laughs) So even if the husband isn't Stepping up and fulfilling his part in the relationship. Wives, you still need to do your part because God is saying you have tremendous influence to affect your husband. In fact, when wives submit, I call it the vice. God is above, the wife is in submission. Guess who's in between? God can put the squeeze on your husband. See, think about it what happened with, yeah, I'm serious. Think what happened. Think what happened with Abraham and Sarah. See, Abraham, he, he really messed up at least on two occasions. He went to Sarah and said, Sarah, I, I'd really like you to pretend that you're my sister instead of my wife so that when we go to these foreign kingdoms, the king will like me and, you know, show me favor because you're so pretty. 
The Bible never records a single word from Sarah like, are you kidding me? (laughs) No, and both times she found herself in these king's harems. Okay, now that would be scary. But here's the good part of the story. God came to those kings in the night and said, you're a dead man. Oh, wait a minute. What do you mean? Uh, That woman is another man's wife. Well, Lord, he didn't tell me that. He told me it was the sister. Nevertheless, you better get that woman back where she belongs. And then those kings went to Abraham and said, what do you think you're doing? You almost caused me to sin against God. See, God used the kings to rebuke Abraham for his foolishness and his lack of faith. Well, I know that sometimes these words are often difficult to accept, and some are probably wondering, is there ever a reason for a marriage to be ended because the husband really has fallen down in his responsibility, you know, because of his sinful or her sinful conduct and one of the marriage partners, can it be ended? Well, yeah, it can be. The Bible says that uh, Jesus acknowledged that because of hardness of heart, sometimes marriage relationships can be destroyed. Hardness of heart is defined to be a person's unwillingness to repent of their selfish, sinful conduct, such as adultery. That's such a foundational thing. It so violates the foundational trust of a marriage relationship that sometimes, especially when there's no repentance or confession involved, it's really hard to rebuild that one. But every time Jesus was asked about the question of marriage or remarriage, or divorce. Do you know what he said? He always went back front to the very beginning, to the foundational principles, and he says, what God has joined together, let not man put us under. Don't, don't, don't allow that thing to come apart, if possible. Did he allow for it? Yeah. But it's not the best. But we live in this broken world with broken people, broken relationships, and things, things don't always work out. But it doesn't change the fact that God has established foundational principles about how relationships are designed to work. All right, husbands, your turn. A husband's responsibility is to be the head of his wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, to love his wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. In other words, husbands, we are to love our wife sacrificially, cherish her, and meet her needs before our own. 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands, likewise, dwell with them, your wife, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. That's an interesting thing that he adds on the end of that verse. He's really saying that if a husband and wife, if these two become one, there is some incredible power in your prayer life. If you're in agreement and you pray, It's as though you've got times two power in terms of affecting a spiritual outcome. When I counsel married couples, I'm always amazed at how ignorant we as husbands are when it comes to understanding the needs of our wife. More than anything, a wife longs for her husband to be the spiritual leader in their marriage. Her life is bound up in her children, and she longs for you to be the spiritual leader to your children. So if you want your wife to love, honor, submit, and respect, you start praying together. That's a great way to start. 
If you will learn to be a good listener and value her spiritual insights and discernment, you will discover very soon that this will be one of the most powerful ways to say I love you than you can possibly imagine. Okay, so here's a tip. When you come home, say, honey, how was your day? How are you feeling? And then be prepared to listen (laughs) for a long while. And then be very interested in what you're hearing. Oh, and by the way, don't try to fix it, whatever it is. Right, wives? You just want to be heard. You want somebody to care. And, you know, the body is crying out, I'm tired. I'm tired of the kids. I'm tired of the laundry. And these guys were just saying, where do I start? Let me go fix the problem. No, she just wants you to listen. And then give her a hug. And that's good. Just a tip. Listen, let me give you some more. <clears throat> now, I'm, I'm going to step it up here, fellas, so here we go. Listen, if you really want to have your wife love you, honor and respect and submit, here, here's, this will take you to the PhD level right here. Let you be the one who suggests going to church every weekend. Why don't you initiate praying, having daily devotions, reading the Bible to your kids? If you do, I guarantee your your wife will feel loved and cherished. She'll actually rest and say, oh, I don't have to be afraid for their spiritual well-being. She won't be afraid for the welfare of her children. And listen, this is the good part. She won't feel the need to 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 fill the spiritual vacuum you've left behind. And she won't nag or manipulate you to get you to do the job of being the spiritual leader because you've already put God first in your life, your marriage, and in your family. And she's thinking, oh, thank you, Jesus. I don't have to be leader and follower at the same time. So husbands, Jesus didn't come to be served but to serve. He laid his rights aside and suffered death on the cross for the sake of the church. So the Bible calls us to follow his example And when we do, listen, when we do what I've just described, your children will see an earthly picture of how God feels about them, and you will actually make it easier for them to believe what God really said for themselves. Did God really say all this about marriage? He did. And every married couple now has a choice of whether they will believe and accept his design or choose their own way. And if you doubt, question, or reject God's design, the way this thing is supposed to work, I can guarantee you, I can promise you heartache, frustration, sadness, anger, bitterness, rejection, pain, and suffering. So the choice is yours. Let's see. Well, let's move on to family quickly. You know, what did God really say about family? How does he want to tell the story through family? Well, Ephesians 6, 1 to 4, God really keeps it simple for kids. I'm so glad for that because their attention span isn't really long, so we just need to keep it short. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Okay, not too complicated. Secondly, 
Honor your father and mother. You see, one of the things, parents, kids, listen now, one of the things that will get your parents more uptight, angry, and frustrated with you is if you ever show them any hint of disrespect. That will set them off immediately, if not sooner. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth, keep you out of the woodshed. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, did God really say that? Is that what he really says that children ought to do? You know, are you aware how powerful the mystery of iniquity is at work to destroy that principle? Uh, I hate to break it to you, but father no longer knows best. Remember that old TV program? Some of you know who I'm talking about. Father knows best. Not so much anymore. Watch any TV commercial, any sitcom. Please don't. But if you do, who's in charge? It's the kids. Fathers, mothers. They're pretty much out to lunch got no clue which cell cell phone provider to sign up for. They know nothing about science and technology. They're so backwards and foreign. You know, they're back in ancient times. Got no clue. Children are portrayed now as being more mature, educated, and wiser than their parents in virtually every conceivable way. On the parental side... We've actually allowed the pace and the demands of life to provide and survive to remove our presence and influence from our home and our children. It should be obvious that in order to train up a child in the way he should go, we necessarily have to spend time with them. And when we are present, it's essential that our children are present as well and not tuned out to the TV, the cell phone, the internet, or video games. Training takes time. And I'm convinced that one of Satan's most subtle strategies is to get us so distracted and preoccupied with lesser pursuits that we have no time or interest in the most important issues of life, namely our relationship with God and with each other. It takes time and discernment to discover the unique gifts God has given to each of our children. I had two daughters, and my goodness, I thought, well, you just do what you did with the first one, you do the same with number two. You just... Uh, I discovered a bit too late that it doesn't work out that way. They're as different as you can possibly imagine. They're just, I mean, they came from the same parents. I mean, doesn't it logically mean they ought to be the same? You treat them the same? Uh, They got very different, um, very different characteristics. Now, I'm thankful that they both are walking in the ways of the Lord. But I, I caught on a little bit too late as the fact that they each are unique in their own way. And it's, it's important that we take the time to figure that out and help them to discover their own relationship with the Lord and help guide them in the way that the Lord has intended for their life. It takes time. It takes time to teach kids how to work. Ever notice that? It takes time to teach them how to be kind, patient, to do without to sacrifice for others, to be disciplined, faithful. All of that takes time, an investment of time. And is it any surprise to us then that the mystery of iniquity is trying to take us out of the picture so none of that can happen? Now, I need to say three things on this point of family and parenting. 
First thing I need to make sure we all understand is that the church has not given, God's not given the church this responsibility to train up your children. That's not our job. As a church, our job is to encourage, resource, and help you do what you're already doing. And by the way, I'm doing that right now. It's your job. God, God hasn't, you know, you brought them into the world. You're responsible for them. And let me say this too. If you don't do it, but leave it to the schools, they will bl- gladly take up that assignment for you. But don't be surprised when they get older that they will not believe anything God really said. Because they don't believe in God's word or anything the Bible has to say. About life, evolution of life, how it was created, how it came into be. So let's do our job. Oh, and by the way, if we don't, keep in mind that they're the ones who are going to run this country when we're, we're too old. Now, there's a thought. Second thing I want to say is that Jesus, Jesus issued a very stern warning when it comes to our treatment of children. In Mark 9, 42, you want to make that correction in your bulletin there. <clears throat> Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You see, God takes a real strong interest in children because by nature, when they come into this world, they're by default believers. They trust And it's not until a bit later in life when they realize that, "Mm, I'm not sure, people have lied to me too many ways, too many times. I think I'm not going to be so gullible. I'm not going to be such a believer anymore. I'm going to learn to doubt things now. But Jesus says we must become like little children and enter the kingdom of God. And so what he's saying is that simple faith is something we want to nurture, not discourage. So it's vital that we take great care to inspire faith and not destroy it. And the last thing I need to say to you parents is that you are not responsible for what your children ultimately choose to do with their lives. We're called to love and discipline our children. We're called to train them up in the ways of the Lord so that when they're old, they'll not depart from the path of life. Listen, we're called to provide the environment and the opportunities for our children to find their meaning and purpose in life through their own personal relationship with God. But you see, a relationship with Jesus Christ is a personal thing every one of us must choose. We make that choice personally. No one can make it for us. As parents, we just provide the environment, the atmosphere where that becomes easy for them. But there are no guarantees God doesn't force us to believe and we can't force them to believe either. We can just model what it looks like. We can let Jesus tell the story through our parenting and our love for them and for each other. So in closing, I want to just make sure we all understand that every child will be accountable before God for what they choose to do with their lives. Every husband, you will be accountable before God for how you obeyed his command to love your wife. And every wife will be accountable before God for how she chose to honor, respect, and submit to her husband. And it won't do on that day to blame him or blame the parents or blame society or anything else. You see, we all have a choice to make. Are we really going to believe what God really said? Let me just settle it right here, right now. What God said is the absolute truth about absolutely everything. And in these last days, I'm deeply concerned 
not only for those in the world, but in the church who don't really believe and trust what God really said, but we're now taking in a little bit from here, a little bit from there, a little bit from over here, and now we've got this mixture. And so it's no wonder that most marriages don't make it. And most families are in a mess. And children are lost and have retreated to virtual relationships instead of a real one. So my prayer is that we would all say yes to Jesus. We would invite him into our lives, into our marriage, into our family. That God could keep telling the story through us. And by the way, last thing. Everything I've said today is impossible without Jesus. You cannot do this on your own strength. You cannot do it in sheer willpower and determination. It can only be done when three people are involved, God, husband, and wife. It takes all three. And so I'm going to invite you to stand with me And we're going to sing a closing chorus that basically is a testimony to the fact that we need Jesus. We need him to do what I've been talking about. As our worship team makes their way up, would you stand with me? You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.